Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 117. We'll begin with a brief summation of Jeremiah chapters 40 through 43 and follow with some thoughts about commemorating national tragedies. Yermiyahu has been released. Nevuzdaran, the chief of King Nebuchadnezzar's guards, sends him on his way, and he offers the prophet a lovely severance package in Babylon, since in a way, Yermiyahu foretold the Babylonian victory, but it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Hey, Yermiyahu, you did a great job spelling out in all that gory detail how we'd conquer the country if the Jews didn't repent, and well, of course, you know, they weren't going to, so our victory was assured. Did I happen to mention good job? Well, Yermiyahu decides to stay, and Nevuzdaran gives him a food allowance anyway, and off the prophet goes to Mitzpeh, where the newly appointed governor of Judea, Gedalia ben Achikam, has set up a provisional capital. Gedalia has one job, keep the province quiet and all the remaining Jews in line, which he seems quite capable of doing. But before folks can get down to the drinking of wine and the eating of figs, a plot is afoot to assassinate Gedalia. It seems that Ishmael ben Netanya and some of his boys are coming to Mitzpeh at the behest of the king of Ammon. We know very little about Gedalia besides that he was appointed to manage Judea for the Babylonians. We know even less about Ishmael ben Netanya except for one thing. His agenda here seems personal, as we're told, quote, he's of royal descent, and perhaps he is trying to reinstate the monarchy with himself as king, and the Ammonites were early supporters of the rebellion against Babylon, so their interests kind of align. But even when Gedalia finds out about the plot, he doesn't believe the intel, and when Yohanan ben Kareach, one of the surviving field commanders of the Judean army, asks to go out and meet Ishmael's entourage and strike first, Gedalia rejects the offer, and so chapter 41 begins, predictably, with Gedalia's assassination and an attack on the Babylonian garrison left behind at Mitzpeh. All hell breaks loose almost immediately. The bodies pile up quickly, and the folks loyal to Gedalia, the survivors of the massacre, realize that once the Babylonians get wind of this, they are not going to care which Jews killed their soldiers, and there's going to be another bloodbath. So they gear up to flee to Egypt, but not before consulting with Yirmiyahu about this at the beginning of chapter 42. Yirmiyahu prays on this for 10 days and declares, quote, If you remain in this land, I will build you and not overthrow. I will plant you and not uproot, for I regret the punishment that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to rescue you from his hands. But some of the more vocal survivors of the fight with the assassins accuse Yirmiyahu of being a surrender monkey like Baruch ben Neria, so they double down on their intention to go to Egypt. And so the saving remnant head out to Egypt and settle eventually in Tachpanis, which is the city of Memphis, where God tells Yirmiyahu to embed some large stones into the entrance of the Pharaoh's palace there and warn the people that the Babylonians will get them there as well. No one is safe. And on that cheery note, here endeth the lesson. Gedalia's assassination is marked by a fast day, which is still commemorated to this day, like this year, right now. It is at first alluded to in the book of Zechariah as the, quote, fast of the seventh month 
which the rabbis in Tractate Rosh Hashanah explain as follows, quote, The fast of the seventh, this is the third of Tishrei, on which Gedaliah, son of Achikam, was killed. And who killed him? Ishmael, son of Netanya, killed him. This is to teach that the death of the righteous is equivalent to the burning of the temple of our Lord. Hmm, heady stuff indeed. Maimonides, in his Mishnah Torah volume entitled Ta'aniyot, or Fasts, writes, quote, the third day of Tishrei, on which Gedaliah, son of Achikam, was slain, the last ember of Judea's independence was extinguished, and her dispersion was made complete. So if we had to rank, you know, the terrible events in Jewish history, the traumas, the tragedies and such, at the time of the prophet Zechariah, who's the earliest source for all these fast days, you know, and again, he's clearly post-destruction, post-exile, coming in fourth on that list would be... The Fast of Gedaliah, which as far as nationally ranked tragedies go, it's a, it's a bit of an anticlimax. I mean, only one guy dies. And yes, it's an important guy, and his murder was awful, and his family was really upset about it. And But his murder has symbolic weight, you know, the death of the righteous, the last ember, etc., etc. But when it comes to collateral damage, we move on to number three. The beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Babylon. At first, the strategy of siege seems to be effective. The enemy is held at bay, the low-level conflict, but all the civilians caught in the middle, and then the starvation sets in, the public health and hygiene deteriorating. It, it's got to be pretty bad and miserable inside the walls, but not as bad as number two. The piercing of the walls of Jerusalem by the same Babylonians. Hot conflict, fighting hand-to-hand, -hand, street to street, all the casualties, the terror, it's just bloody awful. But even that pales in comparison to number one, with the unanimous decision, the destruction of the temple. But if you think about it, by the time Zechariah and his contemporaries are making a list of the truly awful events in Jewish history that should be marked by a public day of fasting and mourning, it's testament to, to think about it, how good it was for the Jews back then that rounding out of that trio of terrible, horrible events was the anticlimactic assassination of one minor political official. And all those you know, previous three terrible events were handed off, you know, meted out to the Jews by one you know, villain, right? The Babylonians did all these terrible things. It's like one package. Because, you, know, you know, context is everything. Here's what I mean. I'd like to hearken back to the halcyon days of 1977. Now, I don't know how conversant y'all are about Israeli politics, how into the weeds you are, but 1977 marked the, the almost 30-year run, like 30 years of labor governments in Israel. Ben-Gurion founded, and he was like the first prime minister. He gave way to Moshe Sharet, who passed the baton back to Ben-Gurion, then to Levi Eshkol, then for like 10 minutes to Yigal Alon before Golda Meir took over, and then... Yitzhak Rabin. So by 1977, laborites had been in charge since the beginning. So it's March 1977. Rabin is in the U.S. meeting with President Jimmy Carter. And Leah Rabin, Mrs. Prime Minister, the First Lady, was spotted like ducking into a bank and making a withdrawal in Washington, D.C. This was odd because, you know, a, what's the Prime Minister of Israel's wife doing in a U.S. bank? And B, at that time, it was illegal for Israeli citizens to have overseas bank accounts. Except it's not illegal for all Israelis to have foreign accounts. If you're, say, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., you can have a dollar account. 
And what do you know? Yitzhak Rabin happened to be Israel's ambassador to the U.S. between 1968 and 1973. So Dan Margalit, the Washington correspondent for Haaretz, gets this tip. And he follows up. He goes to the bank and tells the teller that he owes the Rabins some money. And after confirming, in fact, that the Rabins had an account at the bank, he memorizes the account number. He files his story. And the big scandal breaks literally the day after Rabin returns to the U.S. from Israel. Now, normally, this kind of thing is a minor offense. It's usually resolved with a fine. But Attorney General Aharon Barak announced that he was going to prosecute this infraction to the fullest extent of the law. Why? Why, you wonder? Well, Barak argued then that a leader must be held to the same standards as any ordinary citizen. It's the standard he applied in an earlier case, one of political corruption involving Asher Yadlin, the leading candidate for the position of the governor of the Bank of Israel. Barak then said, Din Yadlin Kedin Buzaglo. That is, the law, as it applies to Yadlin, this you know, high elite official, is the same as the law for Buzaglo, a, you know, I guess, a sort of fictionalized working class Mizrahi guy. So in this case, Rabin was not going to be exempted. And even though the bank account belonged to his wife and was used solely by her, Rabin publicly accepted joint moral and legal responsibility. He eventually resigned from the prime ministership over this. Could you imagine this happening today? You say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. Like I said, context is everything. But Rabin would eventually return to the Prime Minister's office in 1992, where he would lead Israel into a peace process that would bring long-standing enemies to sit across the table from each other and negotiate. The first round of Oslo Accords were signed with much fanfare on the White House lawn on September 13, 1993, and the second round were signed in Taba on September 28, 1995. But lots of people were angry about it. So much so that a very angry law student from the coastal city of Herzliya shot and killed the Prime Minister minutes after he spoke at a rally in support of the Oslo Accords at King of Israel Square in Tel Aviv. In the verdict... The three judges wrote, quote, Every murder is an abominable act, but the act before us is more abominable sevenfold. Because not only has the accused not expressed regret or sorrow, but he also seeks to show that he is at peace with himself over the act that he perpetrated. He who so calmly cuts short another's life only proves the depth of wretchedness to which his values have fallen, and thus he does not merit any regard whatsoever except pity, because he has lost his humanity. November 4th, 1995 fell on the 12th of Cheshvan, but it took the Knesset two years to pass the Rabin Memorial Law, which establishes the 12th of Cheshvan as Rabin Day. This law did not pass without incident. Much of the debate centered on the nature of the observance. In the final bill, it was agreed upon that there would be official state ceremonies at Mount Herzl, where Rabin is buried, as well as the square in Tel Aviv where he was assassinated. Flags would be lowered to half-mast, and in schools across the country, the day would be marked with, quote, activities which will highlight the character and activities of Yitzhak Rabin, and activities that will emphasize the importance of democracy in Israel and the danger of violence to the society and the state. In some of the early discussions over the date, the third of Tishrei was floated, 
and summarily rejected by many of the religious Knesset members. Rabin's assassination could and would not share the same day as Gedalia's. It would not be a day of mourning and fasting, even though some progressive rabbis called for a public fast on the 12th of Cheshvan, it didn't take. Indeed, much of the debate and rancor over the commemoration of the date is rooted in the assassination itself, which was highly political. Rabin was not assassinated to impress Jody Foster. He was killed to disrupt a political process that was leading to the establishment of a Palestinian state in the territories occupied by Israel after the Six-Day War in June of 1967. The assassin and many Israelis were violently opposed to that process. Israel's current prime minister presided over rallies where his supporters chanted Rabin's a traitor and death to Rabin, and they burned Rabin in effigy. And yet, he claims to this very day that he never heard or saw any of that. Many on the right in Israel still resent the blame and absolve themselves of responsibility for the assassination. They argue that the fanatic who carried out the assassination does not in any way reflect them or their politics. He was not them. He was a fanatic, a killer, even though he went to their synagogues, studied at their schools and universities, marched at their rallies, and chanted their slogans. You see where this is going? Rabin's assassination was political, as is the commemoration. And because it's political, it will never become rooted in the consensus. It will never become a day for all Jews to mourn because for some Jews, Rabin's murder, though they'll never say it out loud, was a cause for celebration because when we buried Rabin, we also buried any real chance for a peaceful solution to the conflict between us and the Palestinian people. Rabin was not Gedalia. Although, the judge's verdict echoes somewhat Tractate Rosh Hashanah when they wrote about the lack of remorse and the taking of a life, but I wonder what Maimonides would have said about Rabin's assassination. Granted, he had centuries of hindsight and perspective when he argued that Gedalia's murder extinguished the last ember of Judea's independence and completed the exile. Will historians centuries hence say the same about Rabin? that his murder extinguished the last ember of peaceful coexistence in the land between the river and the sea and consigned the Jews to violent conflict until they were ultimately destroyed by their enemies? I hope not. I truly hope not. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, Hey, would it kill you to check out TanakhCast? Or even better, write a brief review at Apple Podcasts Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people who might be interested in some Bible learning find this podcast. Or if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 118 when we continue the book of Jeremiah with chapters 44 through 47.